0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back once more to Signals to Danger. My name is Dan and I work in the UK rail industry in my day-to-day life. I apologize for the delay on this one. I've been unwell with somewhat of a horrific sore throat of late, and to put it quite frankly, it's not 100% yet, but I couldn't wait any longer to put this episode together, so if I get croaky towards the end, well, I'm afraid we're just going to have to deal with it. This is Season 3, Episode 3, continuing, and indeed concluding, our exploration of the 2020 derailment at Carmont in Aberdeenshire. Episode 1 covered the derailment itself, the cause Episode 2 covered some aspects of the investigation, and this time round we are covering the rest of the outcomes. Now if you haven't listened to Episodes 1 and 2 yet, it's probably time to pause. Go back and catch up with them first before listening to today's episode. As I said in Part 1 and 2, these episodes cover events from only two years ago. This is a, a rare trigger warning because it's such a recent accident. Just bear this in mind, because as far as Carmont is concerned, there hasn't been a lot of time for healing. Welcome back to Signals to Danger. This is Episode 3 of Season 3, and it's time for us to head back to Carmont. die in a South London train crash. Some who survived that were killed when a third train hit the wreckage. This was, in the words of the coroner, a unique set of circumstances that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. Carmont, Aberdeenshire. 2020. On the 12th of August, after incredibly heavy rain, train 1 Tango Zero Eight found itself stranded on the Aberdeen to Dundee line, its progress halted by a landslip on the railway ahead. After a two-hour wait, Tango Zero Eight was finally on the move again, headed back north towards the town of Stonehaven to allow its passengers to alight. Minutes later, the train rounded a corner to find a landslide in its tracks. Less than four seconds after that landslide came into view, the train collided with it and derailed. Three of the carriages piled up on each other, with another and the leading power car laid at the bottom of a steep slope to the side of the line. The cause of the landslip, which derailed one Tango Zero eight and which led to the deaths of the driver, conductor and one of the passengers, was uncovered by investigators from the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. A drain system installed by Carillion in 2011 had failed during the excessive rainfall seen overnight, and on the morning of the 12th. The drain was a filter drain design known as a French drain and a perforated pipe lay at the bottom of the trench filled with gravel. And while this design was supposed to allow water to enter the drain along its length, there was a fatal flaw with a system installed at Carmont. Towards the bottom of the drain, close to the point where it reached the track, an earthwork bank known as a bund was constructed for some reason, along the funnel-shaped piece of land which was found there. Now this bun directed a whole chunk of water to a single location on the drain, causing it to wash out, with the gravel which had previously filled that drain blocking the track, and shortly afterwards, derailing one tango Zero Eight. From the point that Carillion finished the installation work at Carmond, this risk, this error, was in place. And it was likely only a matter of time until the drain failed as it did. It might not have been as terribly impactful as it was, or it might not have caused an accident. But the exact time that it did, in the exact circumstances that it did, were perfectly aligned to be as thoroughly destructive as it was, with such disastrous consequences. So now the next question we need to face is this. Now that we know that the weak link had been installed into the chain? Were there opportunities for it to be found and fixed before it broke, and the worst-case scenario became reality? Red pen. We all remember it from school days. Spelling errors, incorrect punctuation, or, well, just playing crosses where we got our maths wrong. It is a part of life for school children up and down the country, and to be fair, it absolutely carries on into adult life. Just ask anybody like me who's ever had to produce a report or other written content for work. You turn on track changes in Word, and all of a sudden, red text and strikeouts litter the page once the review process begins. Now, there is another place that Ready Pen can be found, although in our increasingly digital age, it might not necessarily be red ink, but you get the idea. There is a part of the design and construction process which produces a document which is sometimes known as a red line drawing. The more formal name is actually the as-built drawing. As-built drawings are an essential part of any construction project and they are essential for the onward life of an asset. Essentially, they're a record which shows... This is what we actually built and how. They record any changes which were made from the detailed design documents produced prior to construction, and they produce an accurate set of plans that can be used for future maintenance, modification or removal of that asset. If things were changed on site from the original plan, such as the location of a catch pit or the alignment of a pipe, like we saw at Carmont, then there's no use sending out a team in 15 years to make a change and expecting them to use the old plan. That won't reflect what they find on the ground. So during the installation process, the team on the ground mark up any changes. And traditionally this would probably have been done in a red pen, I suppose. So that leads to the name. The guys on the ground would then submit this red line drawing back to the designers so that they can produce the formal as-built plans. There is another bonus to the production of as built though. It can be a really good opportunity to spot if something has been built incorrectly, or if the change introduced a danger. So, were the alterations to the drainage at Carmont seen on the red lines, and if they were, were the risks spotted? Short answer, I'm afraid, unfortunately, is no, they were not the reason that this part of the process didn't capture the error? Well, there's no proof that the red lines were ever produced by Carillion, and sent back to Arup to create the as-built drawings. In October and December of 2011 and 12, Arup reached out to Carillion, reminding them that the creation of as-built drawings was part of the scope of the work that they'd been contracted to complete, and that to produce them. Arup needed the corrected construction drawings. Now, had the designers been forwarded those corrections, then Arup and their very qualified design team would have had the opportunity to spot the risk created through the addition of the buns, as well as many other changes to the design. This was a thoroughly missed opportunity to avoid the accident many years later. But it wasn't the only one, and it actually wasn't the full extent of this missed opportunity. The omission of the as-built drawings is only one feature of this particular causal factor which the report identifies. Now the full, and quite wordy as these things normally are, factor is this. Network rails processes that were intended to ensure a managed transfer of safety-related information from constructor to infrastructure manager were ineffective. Had this managed transfer taken place in accordance with Network Rail's processes, it is possible that the divergence between the design intent and the asset that had been delivered would have been noted and remedial action taken. The reason that this factor relates to Network Rail's processes and not just Carillion's failure to provide a with the information they needed is because a safety process should have prevented this situation from being allowed to happen. And here we bring in NRL2INI02009. It's a very catchy name for a very important document, a 53-page affair with the actual title Engineering Managing for Projects, or Engineering Management for Projects, in fact. Within this document, you will find a few important steps in the processes which exist to try and ensure that any engineering project, any new engineering project, is safe and all the relevant paperwork is correct and in place within each project on the railway the infrastructure operator would assign a dpe a dedicated project engineer they're responsible for the coordination and integration of that engineering project into the infrastructure but more importantly the standard also places other responsibilities on the dpe specifically stating that network rails design project engineer had the responsibility to verify that as-built records accurately reflected the status of the infrastructure to be taken into operational use by Network Rail. A company comes along and builds this stuff for them, but once it's there and it's part of the railway, it's taken into their infrastructure. So it's important for them to know whether or not what they've asked for is what they've got. In addition to this, the document also states that the PM or project manager shall not close out any project until all as-built records, testing records, spares, health and safety files, asset data, operational and maintenance manuals, and all other necessary engineering deliverables have been given to and accepted by the relevant representatives of the network rail departments concerned. Again, it's another long long sentence, long title there, but... This clause mentions health and safety files, and that brings us into another document, the Construction, open brackets, Design and Management, close brackets, Regulations. This is a construction industry set of regulations that must be followed by construction firms as they deliver projects, and generally speaking, they're referred to as the CDM regs. These CDM regulations require that a health and safety file be prepared, and that should contain all of the information that might be needed for future construction activities involving the new asset. It's generally considered essential to include as-built drawings as part of a health and safety file, since they're needed for future construction activities with the asset. So, the investigation's findings. Network Rail was unable to provide evidence that a health and safety file was ever received from Carillion, and there was no trace of a health and safety file in Carillion's records. A RUP records indicated that they expected a file to be created, but none was available from these records and there was no requirement for a RUP to hold a completed file, even if they ever received one. No file, no as-built drawings located, and while Network Rail might not have spotted the mistakes in the amended design, a RUP may well have done there is no record of how the project manager and the DPE completed the required reviews to sign off and close off the project. But based on the evidence the REIB found, it feels as though that process wasn't followed. If it had been, you would imagine Network Rail to have pushed back on Carillion for those as-builts, and in turn Carillion might have ensured that Erup could produce them. And maybe, just maybe, the mistakes could have been spotted and amended. and I would never have had to learn so much about drainage. In fact, it seems like there may have been an endemic failure to either keep proper records, or to ensure that processes were closed off correctly. REIB asked Network Rail for information concerning other health and safety files, which, as the client, it should have retained for other projects that were completed by Carillion in 2012. Network Rail used its purchase system to determine that health and safety files should be present, should be available for somewhere between 48 and 64 projects. And Network Rail stated that it held health and safety files for 16 of them. It's clear that the paper chain around the construction process left a little to be desired, and there is every possibility that paper and ink, no matter their colour, could have held the key to preventing the deaths, but they never had the opportunity to do so. as we know, there was at least one missed opportunity for someone to capture the area in construction that never got to play out. But was it any other opportunity that wasn't taken advantage of? Well, you've listened to this podcast before. You probably know how this goes. Yes, there was. We know from what we covered last time that the presence of the bund in the Carmont funnel directed water along the base to its drain, This water, over time, started to carve out a channel along the base of the Bund, which the investigation refers to as Gully 1. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that due to the fact that nature works in mysterious, magical, and most crucially, slow ways to carve out riverbeds and canyons, that it must have been years before any sign of this gully forming would have been visible to someone expecting the site. Long after Carillion had left handed the system back over to Network Rail once the gorse had started to grow again and obscure the topography of the slope below. That's got to be right, doesn't it? Well, unfortunately not, and another example of an opportunity for intervention can be found in the form of a photograph, which was taken in December of 2012. The drain installation was finished, but the fencing was still being installed by Carillion on site. At this time, the landowner took a wander across to the steeply sloping section of Drain, leading down into the funnel section towards the track, and while he was there, he took a photograph. In this picture, took it showed two things which should have been concerning. First, it showed water flowing in Gully 1, which had already started to form against the base of the Bund. This water was flowing on to the top of the drain itself. But the second thing that this image showed, which should have awoken immediate concern, was that a slight amount of erosion to the gravel surface of the drain itself had started to take place. As early as December of 2012, this bund had caused water to start eroding the drain. A crucial photograph. So what did the landowner do with it? Well, he stated to investigators that the image was passed across to both Carillion and Network Rail. However, the investigation wasn't able to find any evidence of that image having been received or any action being taken in relation to it. Nothing. Zip. Nada. But as it happens, that's not the only photograph that was taken of this exact part of the drain which investigators found. In March of 2013, a team from Network Rail and Carillion undertook an inspection of the completed works. During this inspection, which helpfully took place on a very snowy day, another photograph of the area was taken. The image itself is fairly poor quality. It's very overexposed and there is snow over the top of the drain itself, but Gully 1 is visible here again, and it was dry on this occasion, But there is evidence that flow of water from that gully into the drain was established by this point. It was established when the time the photograph was taken prior the year before. And the snow, well, that means that the erosion that you could see in the 2012 photograph couldn't be seen in this one. If it was still present in 2013, we do not know it's covered by snow. The report does tell us that it's very unlikely that this slight erosion of gravel surface would have been immediately seen as a precursor to that sudden dangerous washout, and especially one that would affect railway safety. But if it had been seen and noted correctly, well, that would have been a clear piece of evidence that there was a problem requiring action, and that action might have been repair or monitoring or further detailed investigation. And it's possible that any one of those courses of action would have resulted in the provision of safe and effective drainage, avoiding the washout in August of 2020, and in turn, the disaster at Carmont. was cast dominoes stacked and the pieces set up regardless of what should have happened during and after construction by the time we reached the morning of the 12th of august 2020 this landslip was going to happen save somebody knowing in advance and being there with some construction equipment or similar the rain would fall the bund would funnel it to the drain and the gravel would wash out the stage was well and truly set so, naturally, now we must look at the fact of whether or not another possibility existed, which could have prevented the accident from taking place. Once it was certain that a landslip would take place, was there an opportunity for one Tango Zero Eight to not hit it, or to collide in it in a way which didn't result in such a catastrophic accident? On the 21st of August, a number of details were released about the accident. A fairly substantial statement was issued by the REIB very early in proceedings. It detailed the type of train involved, info about the weather system, the fact that the train had stood near Carmont box for some time. Statement even went in so far as to talk about the way the vehicles had ended up and crucially important for something so early, it talked about the drainage channel and the fact that gravel had been washed from it to form the landslip. For such a short time into an investigation like this, this was a comprehensive statement but there was one line in that statement which seemed to be latched onto, specifically by media outlets. Talking about one Tango 08 after it left the Carmont signal box, the statement said, its speed increased, reaching 72.8 miles an hour, after it had travelled for approximately 1.4 miles, which is within the maximum permitted speed for HSTs, on 75 miles an hour on this stretch of line. Despite the depth of detail that was contained within the statement, including a general cause of the accident, countless news websites ran with headlines like the BBC, Stonehaven derailment, train had reached 72.8 miles per hour, or the Scotsman, Stonehaven train crash, train was travelling at 73 miles an hour, the Glasgow Times ran with Stonehaven Investigation, derailed train was travelling at 73 miles an hour before crash. This focus on the speed of the train, well, inevitably started people asking the question of whether or not it would have been appropriate of Brett McCulloch to do so, considering the conditions on the day. Well, probably more people who had less of an understanding about the operational railway. This shouldn't have happened, not least because the investigation was still very much underway. But in a world where anyone with an email account can open a profile on social media and spout their opinions about current events to their varying numbers of followers or friends, it certainly did. And in those early days, there were those that had made their own decisions about laying the blame at the feet of McCulloch. And it might sound as though I'm being a bit emotive about this subject. Because I am. And the reason for that... One of the reasons for that is that on the 21st of August, another Facebook post was uploaded to the site. This one was from a woman called Stephanie McCulloch, one who had been widowed nine days earlier. Her post started, I thought I had to post this because of the recent posts on various news channels implying my lovely husband was at fault. When Brett was at Carmont, he was actually held there for two hours. When Brett was told to proceed back north, he was told it was good to proceed at line speed. That was 75 miles an hour. He was under that. Stephanie went on to talk a little about the way that stopping a train works and how it's very different to a car, delivering a heartfelt and pained lecture on the way the industry works, something that she should never have had to do. She closed the post with the heartbreaking line, It's extremely hurtful to think people are judging Brent when they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Nobody should go to work and not come home. I have three heartbroken children here who Brett adored. His family was his world, and he cared so much about people. Nobody can say a bad word about my kind, gentle husband. And she was right. We we know now that it wasn't his fault. The report didn't find any fault with the way the train was driven. And perhaps one of the most important ways that we can talk about this is returning to the idea of comparing cars with trains. The weather on the day in question was terrible at times, and if you were driving your car down the motorway in such torrential rain as could be found in Aberdeenshire that morning, spray would be covering the road, the surface would be slick with water, and you'd probably slow down below the speed limit. You might have gotten as far down as 30 or 40 if the conditions required it. We all would. But there are some real fundamental differences between the two. For a start, the speed limit on the motorway is just that, a limit, You're allowed to drive up to that limit and legally no further. You're not expected necessarily to drive at 70, you don't have to. And if conditions or your confidence dictate a lower speed, then a safe and responsible driver would slow down. On a railway, the numbers on posts at the side of the line, they look like a speed limit in the same way, but they're not quite the same. The maximum permissible speed, which is what we call it, for a section of line is generally the speed that you are expected to drive the train at rain or shine, day or night, unless instructed otherwise, or dictated to by a process that says you drive it differently. Look, a train driver doesn't need to steer, doesn't need to really see the next few curves and speed up and accelerate for each individually and slow down for the next one. The rails guide them where they need to go, and the speed is set at a level where that section can be traversed safely. And while we're talking about the subject of rails, these provide a much more certain way of keeping the direction correct. Plus, there's no danger of aquaplaning. Brett McCulloch wasn't relying on the quality of friction between rubber and tarmac to negotiate corners on the 12th. Steel and steel contact, and several hundred tons of weight, would look after that. He didn't need to slow down through spray to make sure that he could see the other cars in the lane just feet ahead of him. The signalling system takes care of that for him. He just needed to ensure he could see the signals. And at 75 miles an hour, on this section of line, in these conditions, that was not a problem. In fact, very few things would have dictated that he would have driven any other way on that morning. The report tells us that it is normal practice on the national rail system to operate trains at the maximum permitted speed, where this is practical, safe and in accordance with train operators' professional driving policies. The only real thing that could have changed how the train was driven would have been if anyone involved was aware of the infrastructure failure which had taken place, or if there was a risk that something had reduced the safety of the line, and in those circumstances, the signal would have instructed Brett to proceed at a reduced speed and to examine the line to make sure it was safe to traverse. This would have been done at a speed where the train was capable of stopping within the distance that it could see. Examining the line is something that is part and parcel of what we do. We have covered it in these episodes before. There wasn't a a reason to do it. There wasn't a need. Not that anybody knew about. During the last conversation that the driver had with the signaller, he asked whether there was any speed restriction to Stonehaven. The question was asked. The signaller replied that the line was fine between Carmont and Stonehaven. And the driver could proceed at normal speed. ScotRail, well, they later reviewed the OTDR, the on-train data recorder, which is a type of black box for trains, but I think we have covered that before. They assessed that the data for the journey of one tango zero eight approaching the derailment site, and they confirmed that they would be more than happy to pass a driver as competent based on the driving style, and that there was no instructions or even any issues known to the driver that would have made them drive any different to how they did on that day. The way that Brett McCulloch drove his train on the day, that wasn't open to criticism. It should never have come under it. He was a good train driver, one who did it all right, and was absolutely vindicated by the contents of the report. But Tragically, he never got to go home after this one last shift. Instruction was given by the network rail signaler at Carmont that changed the way the train was driven. The processes in place didn't require it. But now that leads us into another subject. Should there have been a process which did? By nine AM on the twelfth there had been countless issues caused on the network by the extreme weather event. In fact, within just over seventeen kilometers of one Tangle zero eight, there had been four reported obstructions of the railway flooding at Newton Hill and Ironies Bridge, the landslip at Ironies Bridge, and another landslip just south of Lawrence Kirk. Although aware of these obstructions on either side of train one Tango Zero Eight, route control staff in charge of the route on a whole did not take any action to assess the risk to the operation of Tango Zero Eight on its return to Stonehaven, and took no action to run the train at reduced speed. They'd been involved in the dispatch of Moms and Alom to Carmont, So they knew the train was there and they were clearly aware of the loss of route caused by the obstructions. So why didn't they assess the risk and make a call? Simply put, the answer is that there was no process requiring route control staff to assess risks to specific trains such as one tango zero eight beyond general situational awareness possessed by the individuals within the control function with one exception the report tells us that it is possible that route control staff would have required Tango 08 to travel north at reduced speed if they had given consideration to the weather-related risk after instructing the Carmont Signaler to send it back there. And there was a risk assessment within the processes, one that might have led them to give the service a little more consideration and highlight the potential risks. The Stranded Train Risk Assessment. This is an assessment that should be undertaken in respect of any service which is stranded on the network for longer than half an hour and reviewed as appropriate if that stranding should continue. Now an assessment of one Tango 8 would have shown, with regards to the passengers on board, they had low numbers, they had functional toilets, air conditioning and other on-board services. And that meant that although the delay was a long one, it was inconvenient, but their welfare was not at risk. Another consideration would probably have shown that the rural nature of the road network in this area, combined with the, well, considerable disruption to roads caused by the weather, meant that any evacuation of the passengers to road transport would have been hazardous. Bringing taxis or a bus up to Carmont, having the passengers climb down a ladder from the train, into the storm, well, that would have been no fun. Coupled with a wet walk along the ballast in civvy shoes, well, that probably would have introduced fun all of its own. And the decision made by this risk assessment would probably have decided that the safest option was to leave the passengers on board and evacuate them from the area by train when it was safe to do so. Except the stranded train risk assessment was never carried out, despite the fact that the train stood there for more than four times the length of time that process required it to be triggered. While the outcome in terms of evacuating the train was unlikely to change, what might have occurred had the assessment been done was a decision to handle the return move to Stonehaven differently. The report tells us that it is possible, but unlikely, that an assessment in the knowledge of surrounding infrastructure problems would have triggered a decision by route control staff to require movement of the train at a reduced speed. So why wasn't the risk assessment undertaken? In a single word, resource. Witness evidence indicated that it was an oversight because of the high workload in route control, and on the morning of the 12th, well, there was a high workload. Route control is routinely staffed to a level to deal with day-to-day issues on the railway, equipment failures, staffing issues, and the problems associated with normal bad weather. But this was an exceptional day. In fact, by 6.55 in the morning, the only major route in the central and eastern parts of Scotland which remained unaffected was Inverness, Aberdeen, Dundee. The control team were handling at this time about 30 incidents of flooding, landslides and other infrastructure issues, including a pretty substantial canal breach at Polmont, a name all too familiar with listeners of this podcast, The men and women in the control team were under significant pressure and the manpower in place had well, stopped aligning to that which was needed. There were processes which could increase that staffing though. One option was an additional member of staff could be brought on duty to operate a specific weather desk. This individual would provide support to other control staff managing weather-related incidents. This did, however, rely on a competent individual being available and being willing to work overtime. And there's no evidence suggesting that serious consideration was given to seeking volunteers to staff this. The other option is the very serious-sounding gold command plan. And it sounds very dramatic, however, all it really means is the implementation of a senior management incident control. This deploys a cadre of senior managers who can be tasked with managing a specific problem or incident, such as an adverse weather event. Was Gold Command implemented? The report answers this question for us too. During the night of the 11th to 12th of August, the Night Shift RCM, or Route Control Manager, considered implementing the Gold Command structure to better manage the weather issues. However, despite the level of disruption already known about and the forecast of further weather received at 2.51, he did not do so because he judged that, well, by the time necessary staff had been mobilised, the need for the support would have receded. I think it's clear to see, but the report confirms, had a gold command structure been implemented earlier, it is possible that the railway's ability to respond more effectively would have increased. The following morning, before the incident at Carmen occurred, the day shift RCM, he decided to implement gold command. He wanted to manage the recovery from the weather issues. However, the time taken to implement this decision meant that it didn't become operational until 12 minutes past 10, right about the time that route control was learning about the accident over Karen water. If this command structure had been in place earlier, it is entirely possible that the multitude of issues across the network, especially in the vicinity of Carmond, may have led to a recognition of the risk posed to one Tango 8 by the extreme weather events taking place. Missed Opportunities and while there's no guarantee that anyone would have changed the events of the day, all it would have taken was for one person just one to say let's send Tango Zero eight back at a reduced speed just in case. Right back in episode one of this season, we talked about the fact that the train operating on One 8 was a high-speed train, and we know by now that this isn't just a description of the velocity that it could travel at, but the name of the train itself, also known as the Intercity 125, the Journey Shrinker, or the very dry British Rail Mark 3 Coaching Stock, and Class 43 diesel-electric locomotive. Whatever you call it, these trains were designed and built in another era. Built between 75 and 82, the HSTs are literally a product of another time. In the finest tradition of British rolling stock, they've been refurbed, maintained, overhauled, and undergone many other processes um, to keep them running as long as physically possible. But they were built at a time when T-Rex was getting number ones with new music. So we probably need to ask whether or not the age of the trains involved played a part in the severity of the incident. We know that HSTs have been involved in some pretty high-energy, high-speed and indeed high-mortality incidents. Southall, Ladbroke Grove, Ufton Nerva. But these were all around the turn of the century and several new fleets of trains have followed them onto the rails in the 40-odd years that they've been doing their thing. In that time, technology has done what technology does. It's evolved unchanged and, and improved let's just think of a car from 1970 after an accident and then the 2022 model which comes off worst which would you rather drive don't think for a second that this doesn't apply to trains as well when we talk about how well a rail vehicle reacts to an accident the phrase we use is crashworthiness the more crashworthy a vehicle is the better it protects its occupants and its crew don't get me wrong, the Mark III coach was a massive leap forwards from previous coaching stock, just in the same way that steel frames were a massive step forward from timber ones, but were not carrying passengers around in wooden trains anymore. Whatever you say about the fact that refurbishments and overhauls were carried out on the vehicles involved in Carmont, you can't escape a few basic facts. The vehicles are old, and had carried thousands and thousands of passengers over a lifetime of decades. Now, new real vehicles constructed in the UK or for the UK market need to adhere to a standard of construction, namely, again, catchily named, GMRT 2100, version 6.1. The latest issue only took place last year, but that document in general, that started its life in 1994 with issue one. The blurb for that very first issue of the document tells us exactly what the standard is designed to do. This document prescribes the proof and fatigue strength for traction and rolling stock. Requirements for modes of structural collapse and energy absorption under collision conditions are defined. Areas covered include vehicle bodies and body-mounted components, obstacle deflectors and minimum axle loads, bogies and bogie mounted equipments, lifeguard and axle-box-mounted axle equipments. The standard sets out minimal levels of acceptability for vehicles. Especially on the subject of crashworthiness, and in the best practice methodology for such standards it has been improved and built upon as and when required, hence the various iterations. Every vehicle built for the UK beyond that point of issue will have adhered to the standards, safer, more structurally sound and well better behaving in a crash. But what about vehicles that were constructed before the standard? They just don't there isn't a requirement to retrofit existing vehicles to the same spec. Neither do they. Overnight, say, not take out all of those trains that are running. Those ones are left to run, just not having been constructed to the same specification. It's not possible to see exactly what the difference would have been if the vehicles which had crashed at Carmont were of a newer model. But we can make some educated observations on what is a hypothetical situation. We can start doing that by looking at some of the passive safety features included in the standard. And passive safety features, those are the ones that come into play while an accident is actually happening. They don't prevent the accident taking place, they just mitigate the effects. Lifeguards. You might have heard it mentioned a little earlier on a couple of sentences ago, or you might remember it from the episode about Pullmont. If you don't, they're not the red cloth chaps at the side of the pool. They are the little pieces of metal that I'm talking about instead. They point down from the leading bogies of a train. Essentially, they're little struts directly in front of the leading wheels, and their intention is to be the first line of defence against small items on the track. A modern lifeguard built in line with the standard is pretty strong. Strong enough in some cases, such as the 2017 Watford derailment, to run through landslip debris and maintain their strength and their shape. A modern lifeguard has over twice the ultimate strength of a high-speed train lifeguard. The evidence from the lifeguards at Carmont is that they lost their structural integrity while they ran through the debris, and from that point onwards they were unable to perform a clearing function. Though a stronger modern lifeguard might have been better able to move sufficient washout debris out of the path of the leading wheel set, enough to prevent the derailment, It has to be said, the REIB have said they had insufficient evidence to determine that as a fact. Look, I I feel like I should say something at this point. I'm not just here to bash the HST. I love them. They are an icon of the network and a fond memory of travel in the age of the train to many, many people. But a modern train is just safer, which is why I'm going to keep pulling at this thread. The next feature, which is required through GMRT 2100 is anti-climb or overriding protection. Now, if you picture a modern train, think of the gap between two carriages where the gangway is. You might have seen pads on the ends of the vehicles that look like they're corrugated or composed of horizontally extending ridges. These serrations, well, they are designed to lock into each other as vehicles are pushed together during a crash. And that provides resistance against horizontal movement relevant to each other. So the ends of the carriages is pushed together, the serrations lock into each other. Those vehicles will not move up or down in relation to each other because those incredibly strong serrations are locked in together. Had the train at Carmont been fitted with those features, overriding between the leading power car and Coach D is less likely to have occurred. If that had been prevented, then the bodies of both the power car and leading coach might not have collided in that misaligned fashion and so comprehensively damaged themselves during the collision. If that had taken place, perhaps survival space in the leading vestibule occupied by Conductor Donald Dinney could have been better preserved. Anti-climb protection can also be included within modern couplings, the connections between the vehicles. And on the subject of couplings... The age of the design here played a part as well. HST sets are coupled together with what is called an alliance coupler, and it's a type of knuckle coupler, where the two sides of the coupler hold onto each other as if two hands linked together with bent fingers. This gated design, um, or rather similar ones, are still used a lot all over the world, so sort of quite prominently over the pond in the US and mostly in freight. When one Tango 08 derailed two years ago, with the exception of the rear coach and the power car, every single vehicle became uncoupled from the ones before and after it. Now, in a crash, we don't want this to happen. If vehicles remain coupled together, well, they're more likely to stay in line and upright that the train has more stiffness in that direction. Now, the Alliance couplers fitted to the HST simply were not able to withstand the forces that were exerted in the crash with either the lower or upper half of each coupler fracturing. Now, generally, modern vehicles feature robust couplers, which are just better at handling the large movements and bending forces that a coupler is subjected to in derailments, without failing or uncoupling. In fact, another thing that would have been an improvement on these couplers would have been to replace them all together with a different type. For the most part, passenger trains, will they operate in a fixed formation, or if you have multiple units, they operate in multiples of those multiple units. In fact, a good deal of passenger trains never have their makeup really altered. So why have a coupler connecting the carriages that can be uncoupled at all? Automatic couplers like the Alliance, they are really, really handy when you are while regularly changing the makeup of a train, picking up freight, dropping off wagons. But on passenger stock, like I said, you more or less leave them as it is. And that's why a lot of trains now have semi-permanent couplers. They are rigid and strong, permanent in all but one exception. Depot staff can disconnect them if needed. Instead of these couplers that can be very easily uncoupled and coupled using... One lever or a button, they are bolted together, two halves of a coupler which have to be split on the depot. And the only place that the majority of passenger stock splits is on the depot. I can't help but wonder if this would have been a valid option for the HST sets. Clearly, not at the point they're introduced. they will probably put together that way for a reason. But when we're looking at modern trains on a modern network, would that have been an option? Would it have provided a greater stiffness, more resilience? It would certainly have been less likely to just uncouple. There is another question to be asked here, though, and the report does tackle it. If there had been a stronger coupler attaching the power car and the leading coach, yes, the overriding might have been prevented. But would the power car have left the bridge nonetheless and dragged the coaches with it? The report does give us the answer, and while this possibility can't be discounted, it is considered unlikely. Stronger couplers working in conjunction with anti-climb protection could have prevented the overriding. That would have prevented the leading end of Coach D being parted from its bogie, helping to provide greater stability to the power car itself. That might have been sufficient to keep the leading power car on the track for longer, increasing the likelihood of it completely traversing the bridge, Still coupled to coach D, and that look—that's not to say that further jackknifing might not have occurred beyond the bridge. We simply cannot say. A lot of this is theoretical, and hopefully we'll never have the chance to play it out and find out. One other area where modern stock performs better is the question of bogie retention. Put simply, this is the idea of keeping bogies and carriages together in an accident. In modern stock, that retention is designed into modern vehicles by design load case studies for body to bogey connections, which have been mandated in relevant standards since about 1988. So the bogies remain attached to the vehicles as far as is practicable, practicable in derailments and collisions. Keeping the bogies attached helps to keep carriages upright. It prevents rolling. It keeps the train moving in the right direction, the rails and the wheels interact with each other. But there actually is a really good way of dissipating the energy of the train there. As those wheels run through the ballast, they they bleed off the speed a lot better than smooth body side panels sliding along the tops of metal rails. And add into all of that, discarded bogies, they are obstacles which other vehicles can collide with lifting them into the air piercing carriages causing further damage injury and deaths bogey retention is really important and it is really clear looking through this report that the mark 3 coaches at carmont performed poorly in this regard but while all of this is fairly damning and the report talks in detail about several other areas of crashworthiness for several pages in fact I'll leave this section here because we finally need to talk about what happened at the very front of the train. Make no mistake, the forces involved in the impact of the power car with the bank below were incredible, and any vehicle would likely have borne the scars of the impact. But what happened at Carmont was a shock to us all. The cab of the power car detached from the locomotive, breaking into several pieces and parts of it were found strewn over the bank. The driver's desk, doors and seat were all scattered along it with the cab body shell. One of the reasons that this very dramatic looking thing took place is because the cab itself was not integral to the locomotive. It was composed of glass reinforced plastic, or GRP, and it was just bolted to both the underframe and the bulkhead to the rear. Now, the impact was sufficient to sever these connections and shatter the GRP into pieces, in a modern train, the cab is usually constructed as part of the steel frame of the entire vehicle and then aesthetically pleasing and aerodynamic shapes are created from lighter material bolted to the outside of the frame. And in a crash, the steel frame offers protection to the cab and keeps it integral to the vehicle. Well, the outer material, that can act in a more sacrificial way, bending and breaking without damaging the cab itself or the internal survival space. All of this, however, really does need to be viewed in light of the forces that were involved. The cabins of a more modern train, since about 2000, they're designed to absorb energy and protect the driver in collisions with an identical train at a closing speed of up to 37 miles an hour. But given the severity of the collision conditions, significant damage to any cab structure was inevitable, even if it was a more modern design. So now we come to the part of the episode, the point of the story, where we ask, What next? every REIB report comes complete with its own set of recommendations, actions which the branch believes should be taken to prevent this accident from ever happening again, or at least to minimise the chance or the severity. The report at Carmont was no different, featuring 20 of them. The first one focuses squarely on Network Rail and asks that they review their contractual and project management arrangements identifying effective measures to ensure that they firstly substantially reduce the risk of contractors modifying an approved design during construction without the uh, appropriate approvals from the designer and client. And secondly, that they ensure the uh, timely provision of the accurate records needed for future management of the asset. This is the recommendation which should prevent a company like Carillion making a dangerous change that nobody knew about you know, like the construction of a bund or moving catch pits around with impunity, and also that the paperwork required, which could have caught it, would need to be provided. The report does make reference to the fact in several places in the recommendations, to be fair, that Network Rail's processes had changed in the time since the drain at Carmont had been constructed. But it is important to know that these current processes are being robustly applied, are being actually followed. The procedure might be better, but we know that processes were in place back in 2011-2012 that were not followed. Recommendation 2 asked Network Rail to make sure that all elements of infrastructure constructed since 2012 were incorporated into maintenance regimes properly, and Recommendation 3, quite sensibly, was that they use learnings from Carmont to review drainage-related procedures taking into account the risk to the railway from flooding or debris linked to potential failure. The fourth and fifth recommendations relate to improving network rails management of mixed cuttings and the improvement of the relevant standard. And I am swishing through these slightly quickly, but there are 20 of them. And I think it's important that you hear the type of recommendations that were made, but the report goes into a lot more detail than I can. Recommendation six. That's where we start considering the weather-related issues involved in the 2020 accident. States that Network Rail should review, and where necessary, improve its processes for mitigating rainfall-related threats to the integrity of its earthworks and drainage infrastructure. This would need to be achieved by identifying mitigation measures, enhanced monitoring, and giving consideration to resource levels available during extreme rainfall events. This is backed up by 7 and 8, which task Network Rail as the infrastructure operator and the train operating companies to review the capability of route control rooms to effectively manage complex, widespread and unusual situations, such as abnormal weather conditions and multiple infrastructure failures. This review should consider the steps needed to ensure that route controls have sufficient staff with appropriate skills, knowledge and experience all with clearly defined responsibilities and accountability. The next few, and like I said, I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, ask that Network Rail, in conjunction with other bodies such as the Office of Rail and Road and the Rail Delivery Group, should conduct a review of various processes around weather-related risk controls, route-proving trains, and incorporation of learnings into rolling stock design, just taking the lessons of Carmont and applying them to well, other areas that could really benefit from it. The next few recommendations, though, cover specific design considerations which both Network Rail and operators should look to consider. Number 13 says that Network Rail should review and improve its processes linked to the installation of guardrails and containment curbs so that derailment containment is available at high-risk locations. We haven't really talked about this in this series and yet we've still managed to get three hours out of it. We haven't covered everything. We have, I think, discussed um, guardrails before. If you ever go over a railway bridge and you see other railway lines inside of the main line, what you'll probably find is they are guardrails. And the idea behind them is that if a train derails, it's an extra block that uh, will keep the train in line with the track. And it wasn't present in this situation. Containment curbs do the same, but they're on the outside. But the recommendation relates to the creation of a risk-based criteria, which designs where these features should be installed um, and what order they should be installed and in, should they be installed retrospectively. Just really clarify a process around that because there's some locations that might not have them, which could have helped if they did. Fourteen, that recommendation is to the operators of HST stock, and apart from ScotRail, there are a couple, East Midlands and Cost Country also have them in service still, certainly. I may have forgotten one or two, there's definitely some heritage operators out there that have them. The recommendation states that they should investigate the feasibility of enhancing the strength of the bogey-mounted lifeguards to a level as close as possible to those modern standards. 15 that's also related to crashworthiness, and it asks that the RSSB, the rail safety and standards board assess the performance of the glazing fitted to the Mark III coaches. Some of them shattered and they formed really nasty shards, which had the potential to cause horrific lacerations and probably in some cases in another accident, or if there be more people on board, absolutely the potential to cause fatal injuries where possible. The RSSB were then to work these findings into future standards. This is followed up closely by 16, which asks that Angel Trains, who are the rolling stock company that leased the Scott Rail into seven city sets, that they review the design of folding tables that were fitted inside the carriages to reduce the impact of well, the risk of impact injury as passengers were propelled around the inside of the train. This is something that's come up in other accidents. When we cover often Nervet, we're probably going to end up talking about the design of tables in trains and how that design can really have an impact on the level of injury that people receive. Recommendation 17, that asks that the RSSB review the case and evidence for seatbelts and other protection for drivers. It's been discussed following accidents in the past, but drivers don't have a seatbelt. They don't have... Um, cushioned knee bolsters or, or other headbags. Even um, it has been discussed and have been reports done on it, but the REIB have asked RSSB to review that and go back to it again. Operator, uh, recommendation eighteen asks for operators to deliver an improved program to fix and find corrosion on older vehicles, and there was corrosion found on the old train that crashed at Carmont. And again, that's something we didn't really go into in the episode up to this point because there is just so, so very much in that report. and I've tried to pick out most of it, but corrosion happens on all the trains and this wasn't all the trains. So there were corrosion patches found on the vehicles when the REIB got them back to the warehouse and, and unpicked everything. Recommendation 19, well, that was a fairly meaty one with a whole range of recommendees. It asked that operators of HSTs in consultation with the owners, the Roscoes, the roll Rolling Stock Leasing Companies, the Office of Rail and Road, the Department for Transport, the Devolved Nations Transport Agencies, and the Rail Safety and Standards Board should undertake a range of tasks. Firstly, that they assess the additional risk to train occupants which is associated with the lack of certain modern crashworthiness features. And this is specifically compared to trains that were compliant with the railway group standard RT 2100 Issue 1, the 1994 version. Taking into account previous accidents, driver safety and future accident risks, it then asks that they identify reasonable, practicable measures to control any identified areas of additional risks for HSTs, so any area where a passenger might be more at risk because they're on an HST and not on a modern piece of rolling stock, those are the practical measures that needed to be controlled. It asks them to develop a risk-based methodology for determining whether, and if so when, HSTs should be modified, redeployed, or withdrawn from service. I am going to put my own opinion on the line here. I said it slightly earlier. I love HSTs. I think they look fantastic. They are the train that you draw when you draw. If you're not drawing a steam train, you draw an HST. That's the, the wax crayon on paper. That's the, the felt it pens of my youth. That is the train I would draw. When I was younger, when I was little, when they were on the network, I'm not getting on that much yet but still they've been around for a really long time and the sad truth is that they are there's just newer and safer trains out there and those are the trains that passengers should be traveling on in 2022 they're the trains that passengers should have been traveling on in 2020 finally Recommendation 20, that relates to the fact that the firing coach B was caused by a battery that eventually ignited after 90 minutes of elapsed. I've, I've really not gone into this part of it, but the, the, the firing coach B that started 90 minutes after the train crashed was, was down to an issue with the battery in a battery box underneath the carriage. Not really relevant to the crash, definitely relevant to the crash worthiness in a way, but the recommendation is that the RSSB should investigate alternative designs of batteries and their casings, which might infer improved fire related properties compared to those that are currently fitted to rolling stock. This is a really long list of recommendations. And it's at the end of a very long report. The detail that was, was gone into here absolutely was the detail that was required, but I've read a lot of these by now. I think this is the 30 something accident that I've I've covered on this podcast. And then this one's a detailed one and the recommendations are far reaching and it's, it's only been two years. It's only been six months since the report was published. Um, we're not quite at the point yet where They're all being closed off now, but it's really interesting to to sit and watch and see what the industry does when we have more new knowledge paid for by more lives. These three episodes have been a long three episodes to work through, and I really do hope that I've done it justice. The Subject matter is pretty complex in places, and every now and then I'll read these, and I'm just trying to get my head around it, because I'm trying to explain it. The, The whole premise of the podcast is trying to explain what are relatively complex mechanical or operational issues in a way that, A, it's actually enjoyable to listen to, and B, it's understandable. So I do really hope that I've managed that and done it justice here. But if you want more, if you want to learn more, if you can spend a couple of hours, I would really absolutely recommend probably more this than any of the others. Go and read the report yourself, or even better, if you want to be taken through that report page by page by someone who actually knows what he's talking about, Get yourself onto YouTube and search for Rail Natter. It is a a wonderful series. It's available in the podcast as well, but for this one, go for the video. It's produced by the wonderful Gareth Dennis, who is a rail engineer himself. And he did a multi-part page turn, I think three or four part episode on the Karma Report, where he has it up on screen. He flicks through page by page. He talks about what's in there. He explains the things that he knows about and... Like I said, he's a railway engineer in in real life and he knows what he's talking about and it definitely came in handy while I was writing this. Just make sure you don't trade in my show for his. There's room for plenty of railway podcasts in people's lives. The very last thing that I want to talk about before we close out this chapter on Carmont is something that was a little bit unexpected, a consequence that I don't think we've seen after an accident before. This accident absolutely jarred the industry, and I mean shocked it. I I work in it, I was there, I was with people on, on the network the day this happened. We could be forgiven for thinking that we'd moved past accidents of this scale, real proper train crashes. But when we were confronted with it, we did what any good team did, and we rallied around on a massive scale. Over the next few days after the accident, I started hearing a phrase more and more, railway family. The concept we've all felt clearly an affinity to those we work alongside or to those people doing the same job elsewhere in the world. It's it's the bus drivers from different companies who wave at each other when they drive down the road. It's, oh, I do that job, but I do it over there. The feeling of, of this railway family really came into a, a reality in the days following the accident. In August of 2020, a Facebook group was created and it was called The Railway Family, The group grew rapidly in membership and it was filled with conversation, messages of support, like-minded people discussing what had taken place and being there for each other. Signs of respect rapidly circulated the group and the wider industry, an image of the BR double arrow symbol in solid black emblazoned with the letters one tango zero eight that rapidly became the profile picture of, of many people who had connections to the industry in a relatively short time that was turned into a physical pin badge to commemorate those people that we as an industry lost for me. And I imagine for many others seeing this group grow and watching colleagues and friends from around the network, interact with each other and be there for each other. Well, that was a real help while I came to terms with the accident and what it meant for the industry The group is for former and current railway women and men, and it's continued to grow over time. I think the membership now is just a hair under 16,000 individuals. It's a place where the industry can share funny stories and articles, hints and tips about this and that, and sometimes just stuff to get you through the difficult day when the shift is a bit long and a bit too tough. But there is one thing about the group over the last two years that has remained constant. When August rolls around, posts start to flood the wall, tributes reminding us how it all came about and of the three people that we tragically lost two years ago. Make no mistake, writing Carmont has been difficult for me. Not because, Well, yes, because it's been complex, but it hasn't been difficult because of that. It's been difficult because more than ever, I have really felt the need to do justice to this accident, to for the people who lost their lives, but even more so um, to the people on the periphery. It really doesn't escape me that there are probably, possibly people out there who are involved in the railway industry, have links to it, or enthusiasts, et cetera, et cetera, that are closely linked to this accident. Maybe they knew people who lost their lives. Maybe they worked with them. There's always people left behind. There's always the empty chair. And if anybody out there listening does have a link to this accident, I really hope that I did my job well enough. Joining me for yet another episode of season three. I've said before, please like, share and review the podcast. Come interact with me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and just come and chat to me. I'm more than happy to do that. I enjoy it. There is a Patreon for this podcast. And if you are interested in supporting us, um, it is very much appreciated. The decision is entirely all yours. But if that's something you are interested in, get yourself to Signals to Danger on Patreon. This week's episode has been scored with the following music. Ending, Scaled Down Version by Peter Sandberg. Winter Winds by Lion Niesgaard. After the Tragedy by Damon Green. The Merchant's Prayer by Lama House. The Old Tin Roof and First Drops of Rain by Rickard Fromm. Sentient by Gavin Luke. And this week's closing credits were Tumbling Part 1, Scaled Down Version. By Peter Sandberg. Thank you once more for joining me, and until next time, travel safe.